My name is Terrell Jermaine Starr, the host of Black Diplomats, the dopest foreign policy podcast on the planet. Today, we're continuing our coverage about the ongoing protests in Belarus as they enter into their second month. Our guest helping us to break all that down is Belarusian journalist Hannah Lubakova and also a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Like I said, she's been on the ground covering the uprisings from day one. For the next hour, she'll update us on some of the latest developments there in Belarus. So to make sure that we're on the same page, I'm going to give you a breakdown of what's going on in case you haven't been following the news. Last month, Belarusians cast their ballots for president. And while Alexander Lukashenko has been in power for nearly 20 years, and won the election in, in a uh, election that many leaders around the world and even locally consider fraudulent. That's one of the reasons why they're going to the protests. So right now, opposition leaders Maria Kolesnikova, Svetlana Tsikhanovskaya, and Veronika Tsapkala threatened his hold on power so much so that he initiated unprecedented election rigging and threats to his political opponents. Lukashenko won the election by 80%. And again, local and international observers all say that it was an unfair election. And that's when the protesters took to the street where they've been for more than a month. And like I said, going into their second month, Belarusian security forces have responded brutally, mass arresting protesters and beating and torturing them. Also threatening media covering the protests. And so as for the all-female leading opposition leaders, uh, Svetlana was forced into exile in nearby Lithuania. Maria was driven to the Ukrainian um, border to be forcibly exiled out of the country, but she tore up her passport, dashing any chances of the Belarusian authorities to kick her out. And Veronica and her family are exiled in Poland. However, the protests are still going and getting stronger by the day. And Hannah is here to help us break that down. First of all, thank you so much for coming to the show. And just want to ask you, how are you doing? Um, thank you so much for inviting me. Um, I'm doing okay. Thank you for asking. Um, it's been a very um, intense, but also very interesting uh, time. And um, for my professional career, but also for me as a journalist. What is the attitude of the protesters entering into the second month? Because they've been on the streets for about 35, 36 days, right? Yes, actually, even more. I think protesters protesters are very defiant, of course. That's the word, I think, uh, the best word that would describe their, their, their mood. They're also tired. Um, as you rightly mentioned, it's been more than a month. So people, uh, it's very hard to come out to the streets, you know, every day for such a long period of time. Um, they are also tired of being constantly targeted, detained, arrested, threatened. Nevertheless, it still amazes me. It still surprises me what people are doing. Um, so again, they're very defiant. They are becoming not more aggressive but more let's say um confident in what they do they um are trying to reap um the masks of of, of uh, like those officers in plain clothes this never happened before um they still they're trying to kind of stay together and you know not fight with police officers but like try to try to defend themselves 
um, and trying to not to be kind of um, detained or arrested by, uh, by police officers. So it only shows that people are trying to self-organize more, uh, trying to kind of respond with obviously uh, peace, but also kind of, kind of, you know, trying to defend themselves. So um, I don't know, it's very hard to kind of say what the whole population thinks and what they, uh, how they, um, uh, you know, how they feel at the moment. But I think people don't really want to give up. They don't really have a choice. They have to kind of stay, let's say, until the end and, you know, fight and uh, be defiant because, well, it's, Many people told me that, oh, we feel that this is our last chance. If not now, then, you know, when um, else uh, we, we can, you know, defeat uh, Alexander Lukashenko. I'll talk to you more about your reporting on the ground, but I definitely at the top of this hour would like to get into uh, Lukashenko's meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin yesterday in Sochi, Russia, where... He reportedly, uh, Lukashenko was offered $1.5 billion in loans to deal with Belarus's uh, struggling economy. This is according to National Public Radio. And so a lot of people, especially in America, have been wondering what the dynamic between Lukashenko and um, Putin has been. And so in light of this reported $1.5 billion loan, how is, how is this being discussed locally? Let me start with this kind of months ago when Lukashenko started, when he actually criticized Putin and he criticized Moscow and Russia for trying to influence this election. Um, and he accused uh, two presidential, potential presidential candidates of being puppeteers of, um, of sorry, of puppet, puppets of, of, of the Russian puppeteers. Um, so he even came up with this, you know, kind of um, not, I cannot say really fairy tale, but this very strange conspiracy theory that, you know, more than 30 Wagner militants came to Belarus and uh, they, they were about to organize a terrorist plot um, in the country right before the election and Russia was blamed for it. All of a sudden, when Lukashenko found himself in a very hard situation politically, in a, in, in a crisis, he um, turned back to, to Vladimir Putin and asked him for help. And basically, as we saw videos from, from Sochi, he basically begged him for help. Um, and um, this is what people notice. This is what they are talking about, that Lukashenko lost, well, firstly, he obviously lost his legitimacy in, in their eyes. But they also see that the leader who used to call himself the father of the nation, this you know dominant leader um, um, Lukashenko, who always you know tries to present to show himself as someone who is in control of the situation, he comes, he flies to Putin uh, to Sochi to talk to Putin and ask him for you know for for money basically for help for military help as well and uh, uh, this is kind of the main topic like people see that Lukashenko is ready to kind of sell the country uh, in order to stay in power so um, the uh, this money this uh, this loan that Russia is is giving to, to Belarus is not we don't really know what 
price, what kind of Lukashenko will give back instead of this money, um, what price he will have to pay. So this is what people are mostly wondering, um, like what should be, what will be given, uh, you know, instead of this money. Svetlana Tikhanovska already said that um, it's Lukashenko who would pay back for, you know, for this loan, not the people of Belarus. But this loan also, again, makes Belarus more dependent on Russia, um, even more, let's say, dependent, right? And we just don't know where, um, you know, where it goes and what Putin would ask in a, in, instead of this money. I was watch, watching the reactions from a lot of Belarus observers and watchers, and we were all fixated on the posture of Lukashenko and Putin. And we know Putin tends to have this bravado, I just don't give a damn about anything, and he just looks disinterested. And Lukashenko, according to Belarusians and everyone else looked like he was begging and it was pleading and he looked very weak. And for someone who is strong arming his people, it looked like a major contradiction when we saw him before Putin. That's exactly what I meant. Like that's exactly what people also uh, noticed. Uh, his body language showed a lot. Um, it I think showed what many people suspected in a way people feel and kind of have been feeling that, well, he's weak. He's not as um, strong as he is trying to show, you know, walking around with a, uh, with a rifle, um, basically twice, you know, outside his, his main residence. Um, that was an image, you know, Lukashenko tried to, to kind of sell that, oh, he, you know, he controls the situation, he is, uh, he's strong, he is powerful, he has this rifle and he will defend uh, his country. But basically, he has become a meme for, for, for the people of Belarus a, a while ago. It's not the trend, you know, of, of the past months. He, uh, people just make laugh of him, make jokes, make memes. Um, and again, what they saw yesterday also provoked a basically new wave of memes uh, again, right? So people are, you know, keep, keep basically joking about him. And um, I think it, it also shows that, well, that's how people are coping, right? With this kind of fear, with this threats, with all this arrest, with all these tortures that happened. Like they, they, they're just trying to kind of um, use humor against it. Um, at the same time, um, I think, um, again, right, there is a, a kind of huge uncertainty as to what would come next and what, again, price um, Belarus and Lukashenko would have to pay back to Putin, you know, instead of this money that, that, um, that Russia gives, gives to, to Belarus. And Lukashenko obviously desperately needs this money. Uh, there is a financial crisis at the moment. Um, Belarusian ruble uh, has fallen immensely and um, it was predicted even before the pandemic that the economy would, uh, would be weakening and, um, uh, and stagnating. So it was kind of clear that this would happen. Then the pandemic came, um, it even made things worse. And now this kind of economic instability, you know, this whole situation makes 
um, the economy even weaker. And obviously, Lukashenko needs money at the moment to pay uh, his security forces and then to kind of um, make the situation stable. And um, as we know from, you know, from, from years before, and uh, it's very logical that a, a kind of economic crisis would provoke another wave uh, of anger. And even if Lukashenko would kind of deal with this one, um, which there are no, sign, no signs of actually, but even if he would be capable of suppressing this kind of, you know, these protests, economic crisis would provoke another wave of protests. And this is what Lukashenko is scared of. So he came to Sochi to beg for money and his body language basically showed that he is, um, uh, you know, um, he's kind of very weak and he, uh, he basically, Putin is in control of the situation, is in control of him, and uh, he's just very dependent on Vladimir Putin and on whatever he, um, you know, he, he, he says. Also, he tried really badly to show his loyalty, to show that, well, there are threats from the West, and we saw in this video how Vladimir Putin was bored when he was listening to it, and he basically kind of did not believe in it. But what I think um, kind of made me wonder, actually, uh, there was information that no press conference, no kind of statement would be given to journalists. And all of a sudden, we saw these cameras. So that might be another kind of game. Um, I'm not sure who made it possible, you know, this video to, to appear, to be recorded and to be published. But, well, perhaps not the Belarusian side. And I think that was kind of another message that, um, one side, perhaps Russian, wanted to send to, the, to, to you know, to, to the global audience, to the people, um, by showing this video because you know this was not planned. So this also kind of make us wonder, you know, who who did that and why. It makes sense. I mean, Hannah, I definitely get it because it, I, I definitely could not see Lukashenko uh, allowing state media to release a video that makes him look that bad. Uh, yeah, that's true. That's also true. And also, I mean, those videos with him uh, holding a gun, um, you know, a rifle were released by basically this, you know, pro kind of government telegram channel, which is associated with his press service. And we didn't, and even this, this recording uh, of a conversation, so-called leaked conversation between uh, Berlin and Warsaw was also published by by that telegram channel with, uh, that is associated with his press service. And, you know, no kind of official information, no kind of, let's say, images of, of, um, of uh, Lukashenko and Putin uh, showing Lukashenko that week. So, yeah, indeed, that's very interesting. The irony is that they don't necessarily like each other. That's very true. Um, Lukashenko is not um, the most kind of agreeable partner. Putin is not let's say, fond of Lukashenko. Uh, that's, that's true. Um, Lukashenko used to be not the most agreeable partner. Uh, Lukashenko has always had his own, his own interests, obviously. And um, until now, he had at least some chance to resist Vladimir Putin. He doesn't have it anymore because now he needs Putin more than Putin needs him. Um, but there were clashes between them before, uh, you know, with regards to oil and gas prices and many, many other issues. Last year, Lukashenko tried to kind of resist this um, deeper integration agreements between Belarus and Russia, 
But let's remember uh, that it was actually Lukashenko who signed this treaty 20, more than 20 years ago. Um, so all of a sudden, you know, 20 years after that, he, um, um, he, he, he attempted to resist, you know, this kind of deeper integration. But that's definitely um, this, you know, aspiration of Vladimir Putin to kind of come back to these talks. It didn't happen in Sochi, at least we, uh, we don't know about that. But also it didn't happen not because Lukashenko um, is able to resist or because Putin respects independence, the independence and sovereignty of Belarus or Putin listens to Lukashenko. No, it didn't happen because any potential talks about deeper integration or any other kind of agreements um, of this nature would provoke even more anger among the people, among the protesters. The security forces are getting more aggressive and violent by the day. Can you tell us some of the tactics that security forces are using against the protesters and how the protesters are responding? I can say um, I feel that basically there are no rules at the moment in terms of kind of legality of actions of, of the police, of riot police or um, kind of interior ministry and, and security forces. There are people without any insignia, um, unidentified people who detain um, and arrest and beat people on the streets. Um, just more than a week ago, that there were people who looked basically like gangsters, like bandits. Um, they, were, they wore plain clothes and they had buttons in their hands, but they didn't have any other identification signs. So these might have easily been you know just gangsters who walked on this on the streets of minsk and who just beat people um there was also a situation when a top police official approached a cafe and broke the window with uh, with his buttons so they basically damaged you know the city property they uh, beat people badly they arrest people just you know for walking uh, for going out uh, to, to the streets, basically, um, and that's what ha what's 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 happening. So people are being uh, arrested because they come to a court uh, where a trial is is being held, and they just come and you know ex express their solidarity. They just stand, and uh, you know they are they're being arrested for this. Just you know a few hours ago, a person was arrested for defending in in Euro. Um, in one of the neighborhoods in Minsk and uh, someone was arrested for asking a policeman to show basically this you know plain clothes officer not even a policeman um, to show uh, to show an ID to show that he is a is an officer so this has been happening like people are just being arrested for nothing but also um, people are being attacked uh, people are being dragged out of their cars for you know because they they just didn't move or just you know stood in one place um people are being arrested actually for uh for honking literally uh there were situations when people were dragged out of their cars you know because they just honked in support and solidarity with with the protesters so um basically you know uh there are there are no rules and it all what i feel what is happening the situation the current situation is increasingly um, kind of reminds me of um, of a mafia state, 
when uh, you know police are behaving like um, well, like gangsters. And uh, the protesters are um, well; they keep being peaceful. They don't really uh, well. This is a peaceful nation in the first place, but they don't really have um, any other choice. Otherwise, they would you know the situation would have been even worse. Um, and um, and uh, they basically, uh, you know, people are just singing, people are just walking with their banners, you know, they, they're chanting some pro-democracy slogans. Um, they even chant police are with people, the army are with people as an attempt to kind of, um, you know, show that they are peaceful and ask those, uh, you know, officers, those security forces not to attack them. So they, these are people who are kind of trying to, uh, let's say, offer um, you know, a compromise, and um, and the, the the security forces um, members don't really uh, don't really respect that. So um, there were recently attempts to um, with women, especially they they tried to rip off the masks of, of those unidentified, anonymous, basically security forces members or whoever these people are, and to kind of show show their face. Um, and this provokes a lot of, I guess, stress, nervousness um, among among the um, among those people, among those security forces members. They're really scared of being identified. Um, and whenever the, whenever the protesters do this, they are trying to disappear, you know, to to, um, to hide, to flee, basically. Um, but there also there was there were situations when uh, when those women who were um, who tried to do this they were um, put in jail and a criminal case was was opened against one woman. Um, so so this is also kind of been you know people are being punished for for this. Yeah, that obviously seems strategic because the assumption is that the woman would be not so much of a threat to approach these people in these masks. As a man would. Well, that's because um, people, uh, well, at least women, uh, until recently, at least, they were. I cannot say that they were not attacked. No, they were beaten and they were jailed. And uh, there is information that rapes actually took place in those detention centers in the first days after the election. So it's not like women uh, were not um, did not suffer. But there is this, there is this kind of, you know, um, wide assumption, yes, that you know, female protests are are kind of safer. It was the case until recently, but as we can see now, uh, women are being attacked again, and uh, they they be they're being beaten, and actually it happens all over the country, not only in Minsk, and people, women are being detained um, as well. So so violence is back. And we are indeed, um, after more than a month, we are in a way coming back to a situation right after the election when um, you know thousands of people were were detained, but also there were tortures in detention centers, and and people were attacked very very badly, right? Um, most recently, um, last Sunday, there were some grenades again used in Minsk, at least once there were shots also in, into the air, but still um, police riot, kind of riot police officers, uh, without any insignia, by the way, they had guns and they shot in the air. 
also there were water cannons used in Brest. So we're coming back to a situation uh, that happened right after the election. And first, violence is back, women are being attacked, and also um, they see no kind of special measures are being, um, are being used against the protesters. At this moment, it appears that the security forces in the wider government of Belarus in general, the workers, the, the government workers, are still backing Lukashenko, or is that not the case? Because it appears to be the case based on what I'm, what I'm seeing so far. Uh, what I can definitely say is that I don't really have in mind any social, single social group, professional or age group that would support Lukashenko. And that's perhaps um, a very recent, um, or at least the trend that, that you know, has been taking place in the past years, but that's indeed something that surprised, I guess, all of us journalists, political commentators, that um, it, it's phenomenal in a way. You know, Lukashenko, who is in control of, of basically everything, of the power of vertical, of the media, of, um, you know, the parliament, he doesn't have any support of, the, um, of any kind of single social group. Um, so what is he relying on at the moment? So these are security forces of course, um, and um, I cannot say that uh, the situation is kind of monolithic and um, I think there are different moods in the army among, you know, riot police um, and among those kind of prosecutor's office, for example, and we can see this because he recently fired the general prosecutor, he recently, again, uh, before the election, he reshuffled the government um, and made it kind of a wartime cabinet. So he introduced more um, kind of those people associated with the Siloviki, with those you know security forces members to the government. Um, he also um, kind of strengthened the, the the role of the KGB recently. So that's kind of the um, the people he's relying on. But there were cases, there were resignations from um, among security forces members. So that's also kind of worth remembering. And I think that the situation is not really monolithic and there are different moods there as well. And it also, I mean, these people are tired, you know, as much as protesters are tired, uh, security forces members are tired too. And I think they see that, you know, these orders, uh, many of those orders were just, or, you know, all of them basically were unfair. And, um, and they might kind of have some doubts as well. When it comes to his power vertical, when it comes to these kind of local authorities on, on kind of different levels to the parliament, um, this is, again, the house, the system that Lukashenko has built, um, has been building basically in the past 26 years. It's very difficult to, to ruin it in, in more than a month. Uh, this is a well, uh, maintained well kind of controlled system uh, by, by, by him. There are, um, he excluded all of this kind of most important prominent people from there, you know, leaders, people who can be, uh, who can challenge him. And yet we see that this system is not monolithic either. There were situations, there were cases when uh, diplomats, prominent uh, kind of members of the nomenclatura of, um, 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 kind of former ministries who resigned and joined their position, uh, former Lukashenko aides as well. So, so this has been changing as well. This is just too early to say, uh, you know, about to mention any split in the elite. 
but as time goes on and perhaps this this crisis perhaps economic crisis would deepen um i would definitely observe this area because that might also change a lot among the elite yeah it makes sense because now we were when we were introduced to the protests or the uprisings as i would like to call people who are fighting for their liberation the the uprisings that we are seeing in belarus uh it started off from a political crisis but what we weren't aware of was the economic one how has the economic crisis impacted belarusians right now what's different now than it was say six months ago let me tell you uh, this 10 years ago, when the protests in Belarus were completely dispersed, leaders were arrested, hundreds of people were put in prisons, the political, the opposition field looked completely deserted. It was in 2010. But then a few months later, because of, again, financial crisis that happened back then, people went out to the streets again. That was this clapping revolution this revolution through social media, as this was called. And it basically rocked um, the capital again. And um, that was kind of very dangerous for the authorities. But I would just want to, to show that, you know, this economic crisis, this financial crisis that, that is happening would provoke another wave of anger. And this, um, there are several factors why people are protesting. They are definitely um, against, you know, Lukashenko, against the uh, rigged elections, against this police brutality. But there are more reasons for people to, to express their discontent in the moment. And the economy, economic reasons, were one of these uh, very important factors. Again, people are tied in so many ways. Like Lukashenko has been saying for years, for basically for the past decade, that, you know, the average salary of Belarusians, he promised that, you know, the average salary would be $500. And basically, he has never fulfilled th this promise. The GDP hasn't um, increased in the past decade, decade either. It's basically now on the same level than it was 10 years ago. So people just see that, well, with Lukashenko, no reform is possible. They basically don't see a chance for a progress with, with him. And um, they are tired, but they also uh, just, you know, they want their country to, to, you know, to be progressive. And that was one of the uh, reasons why people keep protesting as well, because they see, they understand that another five years with Lukashenko would be another five stolen, uh, missed, years so they just want uh they just want him to go and and this is not only about this is obviously about justice this is against police brutality against you know lukashenko's rigged elections but there are also more reasons again uh, economy is one of them how hard is it to be a working journalist in belarus right now I think um, what i said before that there are no rules also applies to the to the media field when I worked on the streets, when I was, uh, uh, when I covered the protests, um, especially in the first days after the election, basically journalists were targeted, um, even though they had all this uh, kind of, uh, you know, blue vests saying they press all these identification signs on themselves. And there was a situation when my colleague was basically shot with a rubber bullet, uh, despite just, you know, standing, staying among, um, among her colleagues, among other journalists. 
and she was targeted intentionally. She's still in hospital and no case, no investigation was launched into, into, into this uh, kind of issue, into that case. So um, we, just, we just noticed that uh, security forces obviously do not respect journalists, but even more, they, uh, they just detain journalists for, for doing their jobs. Um, it's something that um, has been happening for years in Belarus. It's just not something that I'd say surprises me, but the scale of it, the current scale of it surprises me. Whenever you go to cover a protest, you might be arrested, you might be detained, and you might end up in prison or pay a huge fine for just what? For just doing your job. Um, there were cases that... Um, um, obviously, foreign journalists are not being allowed to the country, which kind of makes um, also the situation harder because it's very difficult to get the voice, uh, the information out of the country and, and just, you know, foreign media don't have access to, um, to the information on the ground. So, so we feel less protected. Um, and uh, we feel more threatened because, you know, because of all these kind of detentions, but also because there are no kind of, there are less journalists on the ground. Um, and journalists recently, most recently, uh, those journalists who work, uh, who, who have accreditation, who work for foreign media outlets, such as the BBC, Radio for Europe, um, AFP and some other, you know, most prominent, widely known, um, media outlets, they were, um, their accreditations were taken back by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. So this is another trend that, that is kind of new. Um, so I'd say that basically from being targeted on the street, intentionally again being shot on the street, to having the, this, you know, accreditation um, um, being deprived of, of press accreditations. Uh, this only shows that basically there are currently no rules. The authorities don't really respect anything, like any rules related to, to media. What are some ways, if you can explain that to us in any way, uh, if it's possible, ways in which you all, you Belarusian journalists, work together to ensure that you're safe. You don't have to give me details, but at least do you have conversations about what it means to be safe in protests? We discuss safety measures with, uh, with my colleagues. Um, these are journalists who work both for local media outlets, for foreign media outlets, but also foreign journalists who work on the ground, who come to Belarus and, and who just work on the streets, you know, as, as all of us do. So, um, so we um, are trying to be as prepared as possible. We have um, this kind of best, you know, this identification science on ourselves, but we also are trying to, even newsroom is not, um, if this is a freelance journalist who does not have a newsroom who can kind of make sure that there are, um, you know, bulletproof vests or some other kind of ways of protection, helmets or whatever, um, there is a chance that journalists can um, kind of apply for it and, and, and get this, this help uh, from, um, so we created a kind of uh, this, this urgent, let's say, rapid response fund that's covered in this way. Um, and that's how we're trying to make sure that, that every journalist is being protected. And now I mean this kind of protection that is needed on the streets, right? Um, such, as, such as a helmet or glasses or or this, you know, bulletproof vests or anything like that. There is no protection um, 
as to like when you are detained for for just being a journalist or covering a protest um you are just you know being taken to, to a bus and, and and being basically jailed uh, but there is this Belarusian association of journalists and they are doing a great job in making sure that that journalists have lawyers especially the newsroom is not um uh, cannot uh, kind of make sure that that there are lawyers or this is a freelance journalist so um so this is um these are kind of some of those um, ways and measures we are taking uh we are all the time in touch we are if someone goes um for an interview and this person is not kind of um, that hero or this person um, is kind of not reliable or something and there is potential danger. There are obviously check-ins. So we check well, whether this person is back. What's your opinion about objectivity in journalism when you are covering a story that is so intimate and so personal to you, which is the stability and the survival of your country? Because in America, Black journalists who are covering the Black Lives Matter movement, we're often accused of not being objective because we write about race. And obviously the protests, the uprisings here in America are a result of police brutality. And we have that, well, people, we're often accused of lacking objectivity when we cover our own communities. I'm curious as to what, if you have those same conversations in Belarus. I think um, this kind of um, how to distinguish activism and journalism, that's a great um, problem, a great issue, a great challenge here as well. I think we have a long tradition of journalists being activists in a way. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a big issue and that's definitely a great question to ask. What I feel um, should be done and how journalists should behave and at least how I I am trying to, to, to behave. We all obviously have our own opinions as citizens and, and as you know, humans, um, as, as people. Um, and this is not separable from, from us. This is kind of our nature. We have our thoughts. We, um, we have our biases, obviously. But I think that our work should be as neutral, as, obje as objective as possible, because this is our respect uh, to our audience to the people who read us, we might be at war, um, that's true, but I think we still have to preserve this, um, you know, journalist, journalism standards, again, neutrality, objectivity, um, being unbiased, so that people can decide themselves and so that people actually feel and consider us more reliable. I think in the long run, in the long kind of um, as a long-term strategy, this will only help us because people will have more trust in journalism in general. And as much as the whole world is now kind of seeing this decrease, um, you know, of trust in journalism, I think in Belarus it's a um, um, Another basically is trend that we can observe. People basically thank journalists for for doing their the, their job. 
I remember a moment when um, a female protester, I was covering protests and, and, and just like one woman, a girl approached me and she said, well, thank you for, for doing this. And she gave me a flower, you know, this white flower, this uh, symbolic, um, you know, thing that they had. You might remember those pictures. So I think that um, it's just very important to preserve this, you know, this, this trust, this respect. Um, and being a source, basically the only, I guess, source of, of uh, independent, alternative, true information, is a great responsibility. So I believe that we have to, yeah, to stay as neutral, as objective as possible, despite, obviously, um, the fact that we all have our opinions. But that's, that's crucial. That's just our reliability. Um, that's us being reliable. And that's what we have to do in respect. Of, um, for our for our audience. So you feel that the Belarusian people have gained a, a can we say a new respect for the work that you do compared to other times? I think trust in independent media has been on the rise in the past years. But what I saw recently, um, it's just incredible. It basically started before the election. Uh, it's related to it was related to the pandemic and the fact that state media ignored the pandemic, while independent media, social media, and bloggers reported on on the pandemic and, and gave this kind of uh, real information to, to the people. So that's how um, people kind of. Um, stopped believing, let's say, in the state propaganda even more. And um, that's how independent media established virtually a monopoly over, um, over people's minds. So, and this trend we now see, this, you know, Telegram channels being so popular, people just, you know, being kind of completely crazy about those kind of independent media. They just read this all the time. They come and thank journalists again. Um, and um, this is this, this trend that, that is coming from, you know, the times of, of, of the pandemic before the election. And it only helps now because people respect independent media, respect bloggers and social media, and they ignore, you know, this kind of state-run propaganda or now this pro-Russian propaganda. So this is only, um, I guess, uh, well, profitable for, uh, for, for the population, for the people. So, um, so, yeah, so this trust has been on the rise and this, you know, what we can see now um, is just a continuation of this trend. Hannah, how can we here in America or elsewhere around the world uh, support the work that you and other journalists do safely? In the first, uh, I think firstly, uh, it's very important, it's crucial to keep Belarus in focus. Um, the news cycle works in a way that obviously Belarus will be forgotten after some time. Um, because people would just start paying attention to something else. But um, I think uh, what we are trying to do and what I would love uh, my foreign colleagues to do um, to uh, keep, you know, Belarus in focus, to report, uh, keep reporting on Belarus, on, on the uh, developments there. And it's, you know, a lot is happening every day, basically. A lot of horror, but a lot of hope as well. 
Um, what is happening now is, as you said, it's the uprising, it's the popular uprising, but it's also something that um, um, perhaps the what, Svet what the Svetlana Alexievich, the Nobel Prize winner said, it's Belarusian nation being born. And it's very um, interesting, amazing and brilliant process to observe. And I think um, uh, this kind of, um, you know, reporting about Belarus and keeping Belarus in focus is very important. Also, it, 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 it's, it will be important, it is important to express solidarity with, with colleagues, with, uh, with the journalists who are detained in Belarus, who were forced to leave or, or who were beaten um, or even shot, right? So, uh, so that kind of uh, condemnation or, you know, solidarity will be, uh, will be really important. How are you tending to your mental health as you go through all of this? Oh, that's, that's a very hard question. Um, there, there was recently a kind of webinar seminar organized with, with a therapist who actually helped journalists who work on the streets. Uh, so some kind of steps, some measures are being taken. But um, I must admit that, uh, especially in the first days after the, um, this kind of, this darkest days, you know, after the election, when there were stun grenades, when um, rubber bullets, you know, and, and tear gas and all that, I'm, I'm kind of still afraid of um, loud noises. And, um, I, you know, because, because it reminds me of those stun grenades because they actually exploded near, near, um, near myself, near the, the place where, where I was or near the car uh, that, that we were driving with, uh, I was in. So, um, so, yes, I think that that's kind of affected my, 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 my mental health in a way. We didn't, neither myself nor my colleagues probably didn't have much time yet to think about that. Um, at the same time, I think um, what helps me and um, I can say for my colleagues as well is that there is um, this feeling of a mission that we are doing a very important job and we have this feedback from people who again thank us who, who are just very grateful for for what we are doing and i think that's what actually help us um and yeah i think mental health you know all these kind of concerns we, we will have to think about that later well hannah uh as a colleague of mine at the Eurasia Center at the Atlantic Council, I'm definitely thinking about you as a person and we have not met in person yet, uh, but hopefully when everything is said and done and the smoke clears, we will meet be in America or Belarus or wherever, because I'm always in Ukraine and elsewhere. Um, and on behalf of black diplomats and our audience, we definitely support you we're thinking about the work that you're doing and we are ever thankful about your safety and we'll be here to support you all however we can and i'm very grateful that you took time out of your schedule to speak with us thank you so much thank you thank you so much thanks for tuning in to black diplomat we especially want to shout out our patrons. If you like this episode, please become a patron at the link in the episode notes. Also, rate and subscribe to Black Diplomats on your favorite podcast platform. The intro and outro music is brought to you by my fellow Detroiter, Tall Black Guy. <laughs>